Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back to the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here broadcasting live from a third floor, well, should I say rooftop, studio. The stud being the Moroccan rooftop and the studio being the room on the rooftop that I'm broadcasting from now has foam strewn around in an attempt to attenuate the echo. Hopefully this will be a little better audio than my initial broadcast from here this week, which a few people complained about. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing my best, and I'm also doing my best to talk to the most interesting people available. And suddenly a bunch of really interesting people opened up to this live radio show by virtue of the fact that I'm now broadcasting live out of uh, Moroccan time, which I believe is like GMT plus one, which happens to be the same time zone as Ireland. And so one of the best Internet writers out there, John Waters, is able to come on the show at a reasonable hour instead of three in the morning, which was what it would have been in the old time slot when I was broadcasting out of the USA. John Waters has written for mainstream Irish newspapers and magazines. He's been a fixture of the Irish cultural scene for, well, decades now. But somewhere along the line, I think especially during the COVID period, John got, well, he got red-pilled, and that led to his being exiled from the mainstream. It's sort of like what happened to me over 9-11 back 20 years ago. So John's now a truly eloquent, shall we say, dissident, and he's writing just terrific stuff. Latest piece that I brought him on for is uh, Trust the Experts is the Virus. And uh, it's it's very much worth a read and worth talking about. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, John Waters. How are you doing? How are you doing, Kevin? Nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good to have you back. And yeah. I loved your latest piece. You know, you don't know whether, you know, to scream and rip your hair out or to just laugh hysterically when you just look at, at the behavior of, of so many people during the COVID period. And now, you know, even those people who were complete COVID zombies, some of them at least are starting to wake up a little bit. They certainly, they've all taken their masks off at least. <laughs> and so you, you brought in the philosophy for Henri Bergson to try to explain this, like why why it's funny, even as it's tragic. Uh, I thought you did a really good job on it. So um, yeah. where should we start? Yeah, well, where do we start? I mean, it's really, I, I think, the point, what I kind of focus in on is a, a book that I read recently, which is Ideas Have Consequences by uh, an American sociologist from the 1950s, 40s and 50s. Um, it's his only really significant book. He wrote a couple of other books, but this was the one that made the impact. And, and it's a book about really the loss of, of transcendence in culture, the loss of, you know, the, the old ways of seeing things, uh, the loss of, uh, in, a, in fact, an aristocratic culture. Uh, uh, you know the lo- the loss of of those kind of big ideas that that uh, uh, were at the core of the foundation of all our civilizations, and uh, 
it really reading the, this particular uh, chapter in it, which is about you know uh, uh, specialization and obsession as the title of it, it's really about something that we have touched on a lot in the course of our discussions about the past three years, the way that the sort of white-coated experts, the doctors, the medics, the scientists, seem to just elbow into our public realm and stay there. And to the point where in the end they were handing out diktats without reference to politicians at all, it seemed. And uh, I, I was really taken by the fact that 19, in 1948, you know, after World, just after World War II, this guy, Richard M. Weaver, was able to see the signs of this already and describe them in the most eloquent fashion that, you know, having come from a culture going right back to the Middle Ages, which uh, valorized uh, uh, general uh, uh, philosophy and, and deep synthetic thinking about the world, you know, the form of thinking in which, uh, you know, the respected minds were those who could unify a vast range of subjects and make a coherent, you know, analysis out of everything. We had gone to the direct opposite, which he was describing back in 48, uh, whereby everything was about specialization. And, you know, this is really, I think, a, a, a description of our culture now, where when you think of the, the COVID period, you know, you had all these different, the micro, the virologists and the microbiologists and so on and so on, the, 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 the disease specialists and the, yeah, all this. And, and, and each one had a little sliver of expertise, of knowledge. And they put it out there, but then another one came along and put out a different sliver of knowledge. And never the twain would meet. You know, there was no uh, commonality, no point of bridging between the different uh, uh, positions that were being articulated. And yet, so much came to ride on what they said. They had the power, in effect, to lock us in our homes, you know, to take away our livelihoods. Uh, to force us to walk around wearing pieces of rags on our faces, and and uh, uh, this really struck me when I when I read this particular chapter in the book that I said I have to write about this. Uh, it took me some time. I wrote, read the book first over a year ago, and I was thinking about it, and I, I I wasn't sure if there was an article in it in the sense that it is it's a very clear and, and straightforward idea. But of course, he elaborates it so beautifully in the in the chapter that I ended up writing a quite a long article about it and and exciting and quite a lot of his of his own, of Weaver's writing about it because I think it's a beautiful and eloquent uh, description of where we are now in our culture, where in effect we have uh, inverted the old idea of the the thinker who was the philosopher. I mean, he describes the way in the Middle Ages you started off with the what there was called the philosophic doctor who was the respected uh, person in the community, in the culture, who could unify when, you know, all the experts might speak, but then this philosophic doctor would speak and he would bring all of these form, these thinkings together. We don't have that anymore. And that figure he describes in was later on at the beginning of the modernist period was, was replaced by what he calls the gentleman. Uh, which I suppose that would be the man of letters, you know, they, they, it could be, uh, you know, an essayist or something like that, or a, maybe a poet, maybe a, a philosopher, but that he was able to, uh, you know, continue that, but without that kind of metaphysical view, which the uh, uh, philosophic doctor had, that, you know, everything essentially became transcendent, that, you know, every, every, every sweep of logic 
had to have a transcendent dynamic. And that went out with modernism, as, as Weaver describes it. But, then, but that was an adequate uh, uh, means of dealing with reality. You know, it, it functioned after a fashion. Uh, and, it, of course, that, that's something we would remember. I certainly remember from, from childhood, you know, that there were, you know, in those times, you know, something that is absent if you think about it. What happened during the COVID period to all the poets and the philosophers you know, the ones who were always to the front, even the songwriters who were always to the front to actually to 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 say something arresting about some crisis and clarify it for people. They were absent. Not alone were they absent, but they were actually psych- secretly, silently on the side of authority. They had nothing to say to in the by way of questioning. And so now we're in the modern, this sort of, I suppose you would say, postmodern era, whereby we don't have any um, overarching figure like that. They don't exist anymore, at least not visibly in public. You know, the extent to which philosophers or whatever it is, they're right. They're right within a certain kind of, again, almost like a frame of expertise, which is narrow. They'll follow some particular strand of philosophical thought and they'll try to add something new to that or invent something new to, to add to that. But there isn't a, anybody now, it seems to me, in, that I know in the world, in, 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 in the Western world, who is standing up in the modern, in this moment and speaking truth about what's happening in the world. And we know it's horrific what's happening in the world with the, 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 the tyrannical intentions of the powerful and the wealthy now towards the ordinary people of the world. It's such a terrifying moment that we need those people more than we ever did. And there's almost nobody to speak in that way. That's a good point. And in, in this notion of the gentleman uh, used to sometimes connote that the gentleman would be someone who had independent financial means that insulated them from the need to spend a lot of time scrambling for a living and then also sort of echoing the opinions of those who you know might be able to pay them to say something. That is sort of an independent-minded uh, group of people, and there are so few of those. Uh, I just had Jimmy Walter on in the first hour of today's show, and you know he's the guy who bought full-page 9-11 truth ads in the New York Times and Washington Post in uh, 2004, 2005, and then he got chased out of the United States in 2005. Uh, he might be the last American gentleman. But, you know, John, I think that this uh, Weaver's discussion of the philosophers and the gentlemen uh, is worth contrasting with the even more influential version of that from Leo Strauss, which is a nihilistic version of it in which the mm. philosophers are those who see through the complete artificiality uh, of all values, and ultimately the philosophers are those who have embraced the truth of nihilism and denied God, denied the good, denied the real, and basically realize that reality is whatever you make up, and you might as well make it up in your own best interests. Yes. Uh, and so that that's Strauss's philosophers. And then the gentlemen are the useful idiots that they manipulate who actually are dumb enough to believe in whatever ideology is being foisted on the masses, whether it's nationalism or some kind of you know left or right ideology or whether it's religion for that matter. All of those things, according to Strauss, 
and his philosophers who see the truth are just lies. But the gentlemen are the, the people who are dumb enough to believe the lies, and they are manipulated by the philosophers who are the nihilists who are shining the, the light uh, to create the shadows on the walls of Plato's cave. And I think that that descent of this of, of philosophy and of, of gentlemen into nihilism, um, and Strauss being, of course, the prime symptom, is really one of the uh, prime signs of the decline of Western culture. I agree. I, I think that's exactly right. And then, and you see, the the added element of that is then the modes of communication have altered so much, where the, you know, the loud haters of the ignorant have become louder, and those of the gentlemen have become quieter. They they are being turned down in the culture. So you know, it, it, these ideas which we're told are something to do with chronological time, you know, progress, that we have arrived at these ideas because we have evolved to the point where our brains are capable of understanding these complex new ideas, blah, blah. But actually, you know, it's quite obvious to anybody that these these nihilistic ideas are are ultimately uh, deconstructionist and destructive. Uh, you know, that that uh, this is the thing I think, you know, I often think, you know, that there's a, something in our culture that is based on complacency. That's almost the most lethal thing that, you know, so many of these people, they they seem to exist in a kind of a life uh, of permanent rebellion or permanent uh, opposition, uh, which is a necessary thing in a healthy society, too. But they seem to think that they can destroy the core of culture. And that something will still stand, that they can replace it with their nihilism, but they cannot. It's a negative. It doesn't stand up. And, and that's the great problem we have now, that, the, that this fragmentation of thought has, has not alone silenced people in that way that it has compartmentalized learning and, uh, and knowledge and t- reduced it to these tiny slivers, which really have no traction. Uh, in the greater scheme of things, that 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 then as well, they, we have been bombarded with the, the 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 slogans that have come out of this. You know, trust the science. You know, I follow the science. You know, uh, uh, which is an idiotic thing. I mean, I start off the article by uh, by quoting a really fine clip from the American comedian Jimmy Dore, where he's talking about. In this period, how bizarre it was that, you know, for the first time you were being attacked for seeking out information, uh, that you became like people would say to you, Oh, you're not going to do your own research. What? And, and he was saying that, and he used this analogy of you, if you were, he said you were, well, I'm going to buy a car. And they, well, what would the person say? Oh, well, don't look into it. You know? Yeah, well, how am I going to find out then? If I, oh, ask the salesman, he's the expert. You know, what are you, Henry Ford? You know, like, that's, it's so apt and so precise. The idiocy that we've arrived at in the name of progress is quite staggering when you see it in that comical way. And it, but it's beyond comedy, and that's the point I'm saying about Bergson, you know, that this uh, uh, French philosopher who talked about comedy in this way and about the serious intent of comedy, that it was about, you know, elements in society that were, you know, uh, had become so rigidified that they became ludicrous, you know, rigidities. Uh, and here we have the science is a perfect rigidity now in our time, where 
it actually, you know, you actually think about it like the vast majority of the population listen to these experts in talking on TV. They haven't the faintest clue what they're saying. And indeed, I would say in most cases, the scientists haven't the faintest clue what they're talking about. And yet they people just learn certain phrases from what they say and then repeat them ad nauseum at one another. So that everybody in the end is bombarded with this abusive use of uh, language and so-called ideas that nobody really understands either in their particularity and certainly not in their relationship to the broader reality, which is no longer permitted. I'll give you an example for the, of this. Like, you know, I mean, we went to court, myself and a friend in Ireland to challenge the lockdowns, you know, and, and one of the points we were making was to do with the failure to enforce what's called the precautionary principle in relation to the measures which were taken about the the supposed virus. Uh, now, what we found both in the court and in the wider culture was that everybody had the completely wrong idea of what the precautionary principle was. People were, if you ask them, would say to you, well, you know, you just take the maximum precautions in order to avoid the calamity or the risk or the danger that is uh, said to be imminent. And you do, so you cover every, all your bases on that and, 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 uh, you wait, then see what happens. But that's not what the precautionary principle is at all. The precautionary principle is precisely something that arises out of, you know, listening to different experts and then an overarching voice making a decision based on all of those. Because when you actually are to mitigate against or, uh, uh, some kind of risk, like, for example, a virus in this case, supposedly, uh, well, what you have to do is, yes, measure the, the, the possible, the likely risk that you face on the basis of the best evidence, and then decide, well, what would be the proper remedy, the measures to put against that? Then the second phase is you have to measure the consequences of the measures so that you ensure that the cure is not worse than the disease. And of course, this is precisely one of the things that didn't happen in the COVID episode. Nobody did that. There was, I don't think any country in the world. Well, perhaps I think Florida, the state of Florida under DeSantis seemed to do at a certain stage to do something along these lines. Well, well Sweden but, seems to have at least considered that in their initial uh, reaction. Yes, yes, yeah. they did. They certainly didn't implement the harsh lockdowns. And I, I'm not so sure, you know, Sweden is a very interesting case because, you know, it's like I've heard it said a few times, and I think there's something in it, that Sweden is a very acquiescent state. You know, it's a very acquiescent country. It, it has almost like a, a, a kind of a, a long history of what you might call soft totalitarianism, very soft totalitarianism, but nevertheless totalitarianism. And like they, they've signed up, a lot of the Swedish people have signed up to be microchipped already, you know, and so on. So there was that element as well. But I certainly think that very rarely, very, you know, certainly there were some uh, uh, ameliorating uh, responses in places like Sweden and, and Florida. But ver in virtually everywhere else, there was like just, we're going to do this, we're going to lock everything down 100%, shut up and get on with it. And and this is an, a classic example of what Weaver was describing in its incipi incipient form back in 1948. This, the fragmentation that arose from the obsession with expertise and the, the, the almost like uh, the, the, the reduction of everything to details and then the creation of expertises in those details. 
And of course, what you end up in the end with there then is 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 a a, a babble of minute expertise uh, disciplines uh, which have no unity and no possibility of unity because there isn't anybody above them. And I think there's a there's a very interesting point about this as well in relation to the general culture. You know, uh, like I, when I was in school, uh, I kind of was coming in at the tail end of a culture in Ireland whereby education for boys was mixed between academic and trade skills, physical skills, which are hands. So you would have classes in the week time in, in carpentry and mechanical drawing and those kind of disciplines, right? And, and of course, we would have been, you know, among the, in, in our town and area. We, I was certainly, in my case, the first uh, generation to sort of break away from a very much a manual labor kind of lifestyle. You know, my father was a mechanic and a carpenter and all kinds of things like that. And my uncles were all farmers. My aunts were farmers. My grandmother was a farmer. And, you know, we then there was a sudden lurch away from that culture, which I think has been very damaging in our culture generally. Um, when you think about it, Kevin, I mean, if you think about, you know, a child and watch a child like of like six months or nine months crawling around on the rug and picking up objects touching things, tasting things, smelling things, you know. Uh, this is the way the child discovers the world. It's a physical process. And that process goes on, you know, to, to your, to your childhood and into your teenage years, perhaps. And, and in, in the natural order of things, historically it did, where, you know, generally speaking, people did physical jobs with their hands. But in the time of the expert and the time of this new way of thinking, you know, there's a cutoff point of that where you end up, you go immediately at a quite near the age into abstract academic education, knowledge. And as a result of that, I think that there's a severance of the connectivity between the, the thought and the physical action, the shape, the touch, the feel of things. In other words, the touch and feel of the world. The smell of the world, the taste, and I think that that has resulted in a form of thinking in the world which is almost lethal to humanity, if not indeed actually lethal. I mean, I, I shouldn't necessarily say of, almost because you know all the evidence is overwhelmingly to the effect that it's actually lethal. So, and I do think that that there's some really interesting stuff, like by an American philosopher, Andrew, uh, sorry, Matthew B. Crawford who's written very eloquently about all of this. He's a mechanic and he's a philosopher and it's really quite brilliant what he does because he actually talks about this in ways that are both of the physical and of the abstract. And he brings those things together in a very beautiful way. And he indeed was was very, very visible and very vocal during the COVID period, actually uniquely almost among American philosophers, as far as I know. Certainly, he was the only one I came across who was making a lot of sense. And, and, but this is, I think, what Weaver again was talking about. Matthew Crawford was that. I don't know, was he the gentleman or the philosophic doctor? I suppose he was a, a gentleman philosophic doctor. That's well, yeah, what he is. yeah, you're talking about the Matthew Crawford I've had on this show who has the Substack. He's a mathematics uh, teacher, among other things. And yes. Investment advisor, oh, and things like that. Yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. I, I love his first book, uh, Sold Class, uh, uh, Shop 
class as Soulcraft. It's a very wonderful boat. And, and his most recent one, uh, Why We Drive, is a very interesting as well, you know. What yeah, is, yeah he's, he's a very interesting guy. And, and the fact that he is, he's managed to, you know, make some of his own money and isn't dependent on anybody, I think, does, uh, put him in that position of, you know, the Jimmy Walter style gentleman who's free to tell the truth as he sees it. Yes. Yes. That's right. It's so rare now. I mean, we, 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 you see, this is the extraordinary thing about the age of the era of communications, which I kind of sensed many years ago, 20, 25 years ago. I remember writing way back something to the, you know, the more communications, the less communications or the less communication. And that's really true now, you know, that, that uh, the more capacity we have to broadcast all kinds of things into the ether and across the globe, the more reduced all of this content becomes. And that's another aspect of what Weaver's talking about, you know, that, that, you know, it's all, and it's like knowledge belongs to these people then. You know, if somebody has letters after their names, everybody must fall silent while they speak and ask no questions. I mean, as, as, as Jimmy Zor says, you know, this is the first time, the COVID thing was the first time in history that people were punished for asking questions. Well, you know, I, shocking thing. I, I, th I think, John, one of the factors here is that just as people like Matthew Crawford and Jimmy Walter are free to seek the truth and speak the truth as they see it because they have that financial security uh, and enough self-confidence to, to be gentlemen in that old school sense, most of the specialists are financially dependent on salaries from institutions and from grant money. And the way that you stay in the institution and keep your salary and hopefully get a bigger salary each year is by bringing in more and more grant money to that institution. That's the whole name yes. of the game in the academy. And people learn very early on that certain kinds of grant applications are a lot more likely to be successful than others. Just for example, um, a, a family member of mine mentioned that, well, yeah, all of that, you know, parapsychology stuff about psi abilities and precognition and telepathy and so on. It's really interesting. There's a lot of interesting science there. But uh, as one of my advisors told me, don't even think about asking for any grant money for something like that. And the same thing yes. is true about everything, you know, that's controversial, whether it's, you know, being in favor of ivermectin or, uh, you know, any of these COVID dissident positions. See, these people, I think, learn really early in their careers that there are certain approaches that are good for their career and certain approaches that are bad for their career. And so who actually is in charge of setting this agenda? Well, it's the people in charge of the purse strings. Ultimately, mostly it's, it's this, the people in charge of doling out the grant money. Who is that? It's a very small number of supposed experts who are backed by uh, oligarchs or plutocrats, people with vast amounts yes. of money and power. So a handful of really rich people and then their, you know, their pet experts gets to set the agenda. And then all these so-called experts are really not experts in the actual sciences that they're dealing with. They're experts in what the folks with big money want them yes. to say. And so it's, it's, right. it's not real expertise anymore. It's, it's propaganda. Yes. And that's actually contagious within the realm of expertise, I found as well, that I know that when we went to court against and we had a terrible time against judges, like we had something like 13 judges in the course of two, two years, two and a half years uh, fighting this case. And one was worse than the other. But one of the things I, I noticed about them, that there was what I would call a comity 
of expertise. I mean, comity, comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, which is in this, in the, you have this as a concept in law already, a comity of courts, the comity of courts, which means essentially that courts tend to be reluctant to, to step on one another's true, uh, uh, toes, especially across jurisdictions. You know, so there's a kind of a, a contract between them to say, well, okay, only in very unusual circumstances would one court seek to, you know, uh, uh, question or, or, or dispute the finding of another, unless it was within the system and it was a court of appeal or whatever. But in this, by the same token, you have this kind of comedy of expertise now in the world, whereby, you know, uh, the medic and the lawyer and the, 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 the scientist and so on, they each has their, have their little uh, corner of knowledge. And, and they will not cross over then even on the basis of common sense, into another realm, because it's not my area of expertise, this kind of idea, you know. And, and, and that basically, when you think it through, this traps us in a particular context that we, the people, the, the lay people, shall we say, first of all, we have no right to speak, no right to question. Nothing we say has any validity. Even when we're talking about our own bodies, we're not entitled to have an opinion on this. If the expert says something other than what I say about my body, he's believed. He, he, I have to stay silent, even though I'm the one who's been living in this body for 68 years. Now, the same thing happened with judges that, you know, you say you give, you give uh, as a lay person, this is a very interesting point now because we, you, you give before a court. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for nearly 40 years. Now, what is a journalist? Well, in this context, very often, the, cult, the, the journalist is really a mediator and translator of expert knowledge. Like when I, 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 you know, many times when I used to work in newsrooms or in feature departments, you know, I would be sent out to, ex- to interview some psychologist or psychiatrist or, 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 or scientist or whatever. And I would have only the sketchiest idea going out what this position, this person's position was. But my, I would do a certain amount of reading up and research. But my job was to go to this person and say, what are you saying? And work with that person, stay with that person until I became, was able to come away with a version of what he was saying that could acquire a popular understanding, shall we say. In other words, I was rinsing down the concepts into language that the ordinary person, the regular person like myself would be able to understand. Now that that's gone. Journalists in the, in the COVID episode did not question the scientists on the top table on the, on the platform. They just asked them tame questions about, you know, what, uh, how long should the next lockdown be or whatever, you know, this kind of stuff. And I found the same thing about judges that if you started to say something which, you know, it's quite obvious, you know, for example, if you said, well, look, the way that they're counting COVID cases cannot be relied upon because the PCR test, according to its uh, uh, inventor, Carrie Mullis, uh, is not suited to this particular function. What would you get back? You're not an expert. You know, and the smart alley question is, well, where did you study your virology? 
you know? Yeah, so you know, we're I, not I, allowed I, to use our brains yeah, in I, this world anymore to describe rudimentary things and maybe to find out about things. That, you know, by virtue of not having acquired a certain set of letters after my name, there are certain areas of the world that are closed off to me. And I simply then must be obedient, not just to the scientists themselves, but to the power structure which they inform. Right. You know, I, 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 had, I had a run, dry run for the COVID version of that with uh, the you know, 9-11 version when I was teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2004, 2005, and 2006 and telling everyone to look at what happened to the three World Trade Center skyscrapers and that these buildings were highly unlikely to have simply disappeared at near freefall acceleration through the path of most resistance straight down and uh, it turned you know into this, these power plastic clouds blasting talcum powder uh, these these you know, micron sized dust clouds uh, concrete all being you know turned to dust at uh, free fall acceleration I mean this is completely ridiculous from a sort of fifth grade physics perspective and here I am you know teaching in the humanities and hearing from engineers things like, uh, you know, these grossly erroneous versions of what happened. You know, these engineers thought that the planes hit the buildings and knocked them down instantly. They didn't realize that actually the buildings came down, uh, in one case, almost an hour later, uh, in the other case, almost an hour and a half later, and then in the case of Building 7, many, many hours later. These, so they were completely ignorant. And yet, because I was in the humanities and they were engineers or scientists, they couldn't even conceive that I might have some kind of information that they should look at. And then, yes. when I got catapulted into the mainstream media uh, firestorm in 2006, a guy named O'Nellian, who was a physics teacher at University of Wisconsin-Madison, was quoted in the mainstream media saying that I had no right to have an opinion on what happened to those buildings because lacking an advanced degree in science or engineering, I couldn't possibly understand what might or might not cause a building to collapse or implode. Now yes. again, it's, it's, this is a fourth or fifth grade physics problem, and more and more of these people gradually woke up. In 2004, there weren't any of them, and by 2007 or eight, there were the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, and pretty soon there were thousands of members uh, but you didn't have to be uh, an expert to notice that there was a problem with the way those buildings came down. Yes, and, and certainly you don't need to be an expert to ask questions. Uh, you know, why should you be? I mean, you know, curiosity. I mean, a journalist, the most essential quality in a journalist is curiosity. Uh, it's not knowledge. Uh, you know, y y knowledge can be acquired. You can get, take, read books and you can speak to experts and you can try to tease out what they're saying. That this is, as I said to the Supreme Court judges in in, in Dublin uh, a year and a, about a year ago or a year and a half ago, yet this is how we have in the world the ordinary people in the world, including judges, because everybody is a non-expert when it's a field that we're talking about that is not their own. So I says, judges, journalists, uh, traffic wardens, you know, police officers, whatever they are, they have acquired their knowledge of the world to their lifetime in this way. And journalists have been the main, the principal mediators of that knowledge, of that information.
because they're the people who have to go and do the work of translating the the argo or the the the, the lingo of the expert into comprehensible sentences so that people can understand these uh, concepts, maybe quite complex concepts, but in a simplified way that allows them to see the bigger picture, to see enough of this in, in relation to this in particular piece of information that we're talking about that will allow them to see, to understand how the whole thing works. They don't have to understand the minute, arcane detail of every aspect of the thing, but they are entitled to have an understanding of how all this fits together. And this is being denied people now, because one of the things that Weaver says, he says that, uh, you know, truth has been replaced by facts. And this is so true. Yeah. We now have fact uh, checkers who are essentially tyrannical liars who construct, as they say, apropos of what you said about the experts who are essentially purchased by the pharmaceutical industry or whatever, these fact checkers are then put out that whenever an inconvenient uh, analysis is made that is gaining traction, it's attacked by these people. And of course, they just lie and lie and lie and disrupt the question and, and, and uh, you know, uh, muddy the waters in order to make it look that this person is uh, in, doesn't know what they're talking about. And what's very interesting about that, what I found time and time again, is it works. Because people who have were ignorant now and who seek to see things ideologically, either from their side or, you know, the side that they would like to be on or that they consider themselves on, will just simply take the fact checker's word uh, without having any understanding of what actually is being discussed in the first place. You know, and this is this is one of the things like this is quite staggering about this culture, that there is a shadowing of knowledge that, you know, all, knowledge now happens in, in almost in a veil. All knowledge is almost veiled because it is the prerogative and the, pro the property of particular experts. And they alone have the entitlement to uh, explain it and to elucidate it. And it really is, you know, it's really, you know, going back to, you know, some of the the darkest days, the things that were accused, you know, the, the churches were once accused of uh, obscurantism in relation to science and so on. Well, this is a similar uh, uh, situation, far worse, I would say, because it's happening at a far simpler level, at the more basic level now, that people basically no longer consider themselves qualified to speak about anything in relation to certain areas, and that those areas are expanding uh, exponentially all the time as they're being colonized by these so-called so-called new experts. And so we're now in the very, we're looking at a war, a future world in which, you know, if there is a future world, God help us, uh, that, that, you know, we won't be able to really trouble ourselves learning anything about any subject. Yet the only way to actually uh, learn about the subject is to spend four years in university, come out with 17 letters after your name, and then you can speak about that. Otherwise, Keep silent. And that silence implies, well, I don't really know. And I, I've never, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't understand it. Or I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, regard myself as qualified to delve into that particular year. I like to leave it to the experts. Right. Well, you mentioned that journalists are traditionally the intermediaries between experts and the lay public. And, you know, there are plenty of examples of this in the academy as well. There are people who've managed to transmit uh, humanities knowledge to the public, the, the Durants with their history of civilization are a classic example of that. Uh, 
But then also there's the law. Ultimately, in the American legal system at least, the real arbiter of truth in contested cases is the court and the jury and the judge, basically. And you bring in the different experts with their conflicting expert testimony, and the jury of lay people decides who's right. And that's why Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has a point when he says that he actually is highly qualified in many of these cases, especially those involving vaccines, to pass judgment on expert opinion, even though he has no degrees after his name relevant to science, is that he has spent a tremendous amount of time litigating cases in these areas, and he has heard the conflicting testimony of experts, and it's been his job to try to figure out, using Socratic method and, and the legal equivalent of Socratic method, which experts to believe. And that's really what we all should be doing. In my opinion, that you know, what we really need to do is to get these experts to put their cases in a way that ordinary people can understand the gist of them, and then we listen to the different expert views, because in almost all of these cases, especially the controversial ones, there are uh, different views among experts. So let's hear... Of course. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's figure out what are the most plausible, important views. Let's hear them, and then let's judge and decide who's right. And, and that's how I go about trying to figure out what's really going on in the world. So I try, and that's how I used to teach when I was a teaching in the academy, is I would sift through, figure out, you know, here are the voices that uh, are probably the most worth attending to. Let's listen to these guys, argue it out, and then you students can make up your own minds about what's really going on. And and, and so you don't need to be an expert to do that. You just need to be, what? you need to yes. do the work to figure out, you know, who are the experts that you should listen to and then that's, that's, judge that's the argument exactly between right, them. Ken. That's yeah. exactly right, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, you see that, that we have created a culture now of expertise, but in fact, what we should have, we should really have a culture of wisdom. You know, and that's what the, the culture that we've come from had at its core. That's really what Weaver is talking about. You know, like if you think of like two categories of, of, of person, the, the, the judge and the politician. I'll tell you just to, to give a little illustration to this. One of the things I've noticed, because I've written an awful lot over the last 30 years about family law and, and, and trying, you know, of course, you, 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 it's difficult to write about it because you have to respect the privacy of people who are involved in cases. And I've always done that. But, uh, you know, you can write about the concepts and the, in, in a certain way, if you're if you're delicate about it, then if you're careful. Uh, but one of the things I noticed uh, in, the, in 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 both personal experience and in in, in you know anecdotal uh, uh, sort of witness uh, was that this concept of the expert witness is a very interesting uh, effect that really is not being understood. The expert witness, whether it might be a child psychiatrist or a psychologist or something like that, or, you know, a child protection expert, goes into the witness box. They have written maybe a report on the particular situation. The judge has this report in front of him or her and they give evidence. The judge is not an expert in this area, but he may look at the report or she may look at the report and say, as I have often done, uh, Kevin, uh, this this report is gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. But what happens or what tends to happen, you don't get what you should get, which is the judge saying, listen, this report doesn't, interrogating the expert and saying, this doesn't make sense. What you're saying is contradictory. It's not in the best interest of, ch- of the child to have, you know, 
you know, it's just it just doesn't make any sense, right? But what actually happens is you have the judge in a case. He may not want to have his, his, his verdict overturned to be appealed. So what does he do? He has an expert who has signed a document stating this series of opinions, which are all gibberish in his view, but that doesn't matter because all he needs is the signed document to cover himself or herself and to be able to say, well, look, the psychiatrist was the expert. I'm the judge. I'm not an expert in this area. I went with the psychiatrist uh, 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 recommendation. And that happens time and time again in that context. Now, a similar thing happens in politics now, which used not to happen before. You see, expertise, and it, it, the same happens in editor, with editors in newspapers, for example, with legal advice. Like, you know, but the politician, uh, the politicians, we had a, a, a prime minister, Taoiseach, uh, in, in, in Ireland one time called Charles Hoggy, who was a very controversial figure, but a very intelligent man. And he once said that, he said experts, particularly economists he was talking about, economists, he says, should never be allowed into the same room as politicians, as ministers. They should be kept in a separate room and messages should be taken to and from them on pieces of paper. In other words, the politicians would ask a question of the economists, the experts, and then they would make a decision based on their own life experience, their own common sense. And they're putting together of these various of the various pieces of information that they had. This is gone now. I mean, we saw this writ large in the COVID escapade that, you know, politicians were just shrugging and saying, well, the experts say this. So, you know, suck, suck it up, you know, tough luck. You have to stay at home. You have to give up your work. You have to see, you know, uh, your grandmother has to die alone in a, in a nursing home because the experts say that's the only way. You know, that's and a similar thing happens. I noticed in my job when I was working in newspapers where with with editors and legal advisors one time. What ha- would happen at the editor? I was editor, and and you would you would have a lawyer, and you would have a particular problematic uh, article, perhaps, or you know, and you would go to the lawyer and say, okay, he would read the article, and and he said, well, okay, is this pro- is this publishable? And he would say, well, yes, but you've got this problem and this problem. So you would work with the lawyer to rewrite the article, and you would do everything in your power. The whole process was aimed at ensuring that the article got published in whatever the best form it could be published, right? And, and now and they the just deplatform you. Now they just, the lawyer just says no. And the, the editor, that's it. That, there's no further discussion. But, but, but it's, they, John, it, it's worse if you're on a platform like uh, YouTube or GoFundMe. Uh, both of yeah. those deplatform me completely uh, for having guests on this show who doubted the integrity of the 2020 presidential elections in the U.S., or who yeah. questioned aspects of the mainstream COVID narrative, and they didn't tell me what had been said that got me deplatformed. They, all, you know, basically they simply said uh, a violation of our rule has occurred somewhere, uh, and they wouldn't tell me where it was, what it was, precisely what the wording was. They didn't want to get into that. They just boom yeah. fire you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's monstrous, Kevin. That's really monstrous. And, and I mean, like you know, you just go back. 15 years would that would that even have been conceivable there then that that organizations could behave like this and get away with it but it's all part of the same uh, 
the same climate, ideological climate and, and a climate of expertise generated by expertise that, you know, nothing can be questioned anymore. Uh, you know, that, that we have to just accept the diktats from above. And I mean, you know, I, I would say, quite frankly, uh, these organizations that you speak of, YouTube and, 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 and Facebook and all and Twitter and all these, these are not separate organizations, really. They, they are all part of the apparatus of the predator cabal, which is seeking to impose its will upon the world. And that's why the, the underlings below, there's nobody willing to stand up to that. Maybe because they feel powerless. Maybe they feel there's no point. Maybe they don't even know what's happening or maybe ideologically it suits them in a particular instance, you know, that, that you are cancelled or I am cancelled. But what they don't seem to consider is that in the process, our entire civilization is being dismantled because our civilization depends on freedom of speech. And I mean, that's kind of almost like a, you know, a very conventional thing to say. But let's really drill into it. Like, what does it mean? Well, it means that if you can't speak, you can't have any freedom. If you're not allowed to say what is on your mind and in your heart, there is no freedom. And you can't divide freedom between he's OK, he can say what he likes because we agree with it, but we don't agree with him. So he can't say that's not freedom. And it's therefore not democracy. Democracy has finished. I'm not sure exactly what day it finished, but it's been finished for a long time in the West. Well, and, I would say you know, November 22nd, 1963 is as good a day as any. Yes, it is. It is. For sure, for certain, yes, yes, for certain. I mean, they, they just uh, shot Kennedy in broad daylight, and then they they had a mafia killer gun down his alleged lone assassin in on live nationally broadcast television two days later. You know, if they get away with that, they'll get away with anything. Yes, that is true. That is true, and they did get away with it, and they got away with it for even though even now, and more and more people are aware that it's an actual. You know, it it's true that what you've said is true. Uh, it's still, there's no accountability. You know, this is another thing about the culture that has gener been generated out of all of these syndromes is that there are, you know, no consequences now for power. You know, that was the point of the media in the, in the, in the, in the old days, you know, that the media was almost like a final court of appeal for the public interest. You know, that when all else failed, the journalists would put us an expose on the front page and heads might roll. That was immediately the question. I mean, the, 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 this isn't a particularly auspicious uh, uh, example, but uh, Alistair Campbell, who was the PR uh, spin doctor for Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, had a, a concept once where he said that if a politician uh, who was getting in trouble in the media and who's been written about, if he couldn't get this himself off the front pages within a week, he was toast, finished. That's no longer true, because what you actually get now is that the corrupt media move mobilize in order to cover up against, even if there is some kind of seepage of truth into the public realm, it's immediately buried. I mean, you saw that we saw this countless times. I mean, give me a couple of examples. I mean, I saw this in, in relation to in Ireland, but what happened was, uh, you know, like I remember one instance where uh, we had, we had, you know, relatively claimed deaths of 1776. At, this was about July of 2020. That was the claimed figure. And there, it was like a scoreboard at a, at a football match. You know, they were kept uh, ratcheting it up every day. 
And then there was a, an investigation by an organization which were somewhat affiliated to the to the state, but had some degree of independence, I think, miraculously at that point. And they went through the figures and they said, no, actually, we're going to shave, I think, about seven, eight hundred off that. So it came down to just over a thousand. And that was reported kind of sotto voce, you know, in, in the news media and maybe on page 27 uh, at the bottom left hand uh, corner. And then the next day they went right back to the 776. And that that the continuation of that figure is still the, the actual number of if you look up, uh, there's a website, you can look up the number of deaths from COVID allegedly. You get the 1776 plus all the figures that they've fiddled and added on since that. And, and, and nobody's able to get at this process. Nobody's able to get under it in the way that once you did without problem. I mean, I remember like, you know, there was politicians, there would be press conference and there was always a couple of really stroppy journalists, like, you know, who were good at their jobs and like terriers and they would just get stuck into the politician or the expert or the doctor or the chief medical officer and they would tear them apart there on the floor to the point where they would have to cut this press conference short usually and run away. That day is gone. There's no gotcha moment anymore in journalism except for people like you and me. Yeah, that's right. They uh, now are really uh, patrolling against uh, anybody you know who who tries to you know, raise these kinds of taboo perspectives and issues or questions the whole process uh, RFK Jr again being a great example of that yeah uh, it, it seems that they learned the media learned from their experience with Trump they beat up on Trump in 2016 but they didn't beat him hard enough and he, he refused to die and the more the media uh, tried to beat him up the after that you know it was too late they they hadn't taken him out and the the monster you know triumphed so now it looks like they're they're taking this really extreme line with RFK Jr just just you know the only coverage he gets is just vicious negativity and yeah. uh, we'll see whether that backfires or not i wouldn't be surprised if if it might you know, Trump, Trump himself is is leading the competition by more than he was in 2016 uh, against the Republicans, and he's up yes. four or five points on Biden in the polls. So this, the days that the media could just, you know, basically end people's careers and tarnish their reputations and take out whoever they wanted to, may be over, but they just don't realize it yet. I don't know, Kev- I, I don't know, Kevin. You see, I, I, I don't want to be. Uh blackpilling uh but you know when you consider what happened in 2020 you know can we can we even hope that anybody but whoever it is that the cabal wants to win can possibly have a chance of winning you know like i was there that night i watched i stayed up you know in 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 my house in 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 dublin watching as I had for years, watched the the count in the in the presidential election, and you know, and then suddenly in the middle of the night, so you know, everybody starts running around as if something's happened. Not the normal chain of events where you just keep counting, the figures start coming out. The figures started becoming erratic, you know, and the next thing they're announcing they're they're suspending the count until the morning. Never happened before. You know, and yet, and, and that's only the start of it, Kevin. You know, you know then, you've talked about it there a couple of minutes ago, the, 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 the determined 
studied uh, campaign to deny that a crime was committed that night. A massive crime. You know, it, this is the thing. I, you know, I, I see Trump, I see DeSantis, I see Kennedy, I see all these people going in and in, in, into the campaign, into the, into the battle. And, you know, it's all wonderful to, to have this expectation and hope. But I really am of the view now that these people, that are the predator class, are so powerful in the world that nothing they do not want to happen will happen. This is a terrifying thing that I see. I hope it hasn't reached quite that point. Uh, <laughs> the way I see it, they're scrambling at all times to try to keep the modicum of control that they exert. But I, I don't see I hope as, you're right. I, I really <laughs> I do. Yeah, too. I, I do. I, I mean, I do hope you... I, I, and, and, and sometimes I think that I, on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, I see that. But on, on, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I, 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 I'm a bit Well, my show is on Friday, so maybe I'll have to interview you for a video podcast on a different day and get, get you yes, in a different mood I, sometime. I think, I think so. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I vacillate between uh, outright hope and outright pessimism. Okay, well, we'll bring, I, you, I, we'll bring you back on a hopeful day because we're at the end of the hour on this pessimistic one. Well, thank you so much, John Waters. I appreciate your fantastic writing. Keep up the great work. God bless. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Inshallah. Thank you very much, Ben. All right, Thank take you. care. That's John Waters of John Waters Unchained, uh, johnwaters.substack.com. I'm Kevin Durrett of truthshehead.com and kevindurrett.substack.com. Back next week, live from Sadia, Morocco, right here on Revolution.radio, the finest and free speech network. Please help Revolution.radio. Go there and kick in. And see you next week.